0: We started a series last week called I Doubt It, where we're taking a look at some of the major objections uh, to faith. And uh, I appreciate some of the feedback I got from some folks uh, last week. I hope you were able to forward any questions you have, any comments you want to me. Just send them to Tim at com or go to the Facebook page or whatever. I love, I love a discussion. I love a conversation around, uh, with a purpose of course, around the purpose of discovering maybe a truth or discovering something that's out there that is discoverable. It's frustrating, isn't it, to be looking for something and it not be there. But how exciting is it to take a journey and try to discover and believe there is something more out there than what we've experienced and then to go about trying to find out what that is. And that's what this series has been. Uh, We're looking at you know, the questions, and if you're a skeptic, then this is this is your church. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I go to the skeptics' church. But well, you're welcome to come here because what I have found is that even those of us who have been following Jesus for some time, we tend to have questions, and we tend to, to question certain things uh, about this faith at certain points in our journey, and that's okay. It's all right to ask those questions. Uh, if you look back on your life, if you look back at the way that you were brought up, the way the schools that you went to, the education that you were exposed to, uh, maybe even the pain that you experienced in your life, I'll bet you can kind of, in a logical way, see why you believe the way you do right now. There is a progression, it seems like, in our lives that kind of set us up for certain things. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean those things are truth or are not truth. And that's what the grand adventure is about in discovering. I don't think I was ever what I would call an atheist. I don't think I was ever someone who completely denied the existence of a creator, uh, Matter of fact, they tell us, as we said last week, there's only maybe 1.5% or 2% of, of people who really call themselves atheists. There is no God. But I think probably I was more of an agnostic at one time, but as I got older, 15, as I got older and read and considered things, I think I became more of a theist. You know, you have atheism, then you would have agnosticism, which that very word of not being sure but there might be a God, there might not be a creator. That very word was coined by Darwin's right-hand man. He was called the bulldog for Darwin. And Hustley, I got him Hustley. And so he coined this name agnostic. Uh, then you go from that maybe to being a deist. And that is, okay, maybe there is a God. There's a God over everything. All of this could not just happen to have come into existence. But there's no way of knowing him. There's no way of actually coming to have a relationship with that You know, that deity. But I'll grant him, maybe there is a deity. Maybe there is is some power beyond us that created all of this. And then the next kind of a step was a theist. And I think that's probably where I spent most of my time in high school, uh, right before uh, I responded to Christ's call. And that is being a theist, and that is that there is a God or gods that does express himself in some ways so that we can know it. That is through revelation, through some interaction with mankind. And so I'd say I was probably a theist. What were you, you know, what were you growing up? Were you raised in a Christian home? Were you raised a skeptic? Were you raised to doubt everything, to question, to pursue? Uh, It's interesting to take a look back and look at your journey. I look at my mom. My mom was a frustrated intellectual. I mean, she would sit at home. I, I saw her reading the dictionary one day, and I said, Mom, what are you looking up? She said, I'm not looking up anything. I'm making my way through the dictionary for the third time. And I thought, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. Who sits down? Do, is, do you, have you not exposed yourself to, like, novels? And, of course, she had. She was a vociferous reader. She just read and read and read. And my dad's a very practical man, not much of an education as far as books go, but could go out and build anything. Absolutely anything. And so I had this practical side to my life that I think put me on somewhat of a trajectory to question and look for facts and look for proof. And so, I mean, it's interesting to take that, look at our lives and see why do we think the way we do? Why do we process? I think it's beautiful the myriad of ways that God reaches us and the fact that he allows us to journey this way in life. Last week I mentioned two things as we began this new series that I hope in some ways takes the pressure off and at the same time positions us for being able to uh, look at this in a very reasonable way. And the first one was that there is no such thing as absolute certainty. There is no such thing as absolute certainty. But yet we make decisions in life every day, life-threatening I mean we'll get on a plane I mentioned this last week we get on a plane we have at, we have no absolute certainty that plane is going to make it to California We don't even know if the pilot is really the pilot We don't know but we have evidence we have some results we look and we go well they don't fall out of the sky that often And so there is actionable intelligence. There's enough information out there that we can take that information in and then we make decisions. I mean, we put our lives on the line through this information. We go to the airport and we don't know the pilot. We don't know the maintenance record for the plane, but we will get on it. We will make a decision. We take medicine because somebody put a name on it. It comes from people we don't know. We don't know what's in it, but we know that someone who is trustworthy prescribed it and we trust that someone there put the right one in the right prescription bottle and then when I take it, it's not going to make me worse. But there's no absolute certainty. I don't know why we want to approach God with with this sense of, I have to be absolutely certain that he exists. When we do everything else in life without that. But we do make decisions with actionable intelligence. And I do believe there are enough clues, there's enough evidence out there for us to make a reasonable decision and choice to step forward toward God. And so that's our journey. Uh, This week, uh, we're going to look at four clues, four evidences uh, for God's existence. Now next week, we're going to take on the problem of pain, that pain uh, will cause us to kind of pull back from God or from believing that God exists or believing that he's a good God. We want to step back from that. So if you have people or you know people or maybe you're one of these folks that have, you've experienced so much loss in your life and let down that you just cannot believe there is such a thing as a good God, then I want you to come back next week. Bring someone with you as well that maybe is hurting and is looking for some proof, some evidence. That God, a good God, exists. If you got your Bibles, you want to turn over to Psalm 19. Uh, we'll start there this morning. You have a fill-in in your handout, too, with the acronym C-L-U-E-S, clues. That way, you can just track along with me. Psalm one or Psalm 19. Excuse me, Psalm 19, verses one through four. <clears throat> the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. Father, we just pray blessing on your word this morning. Uh, Lord, I do believe you make yourself known in so many ways. And I pray this morning that our hearts would be open to you and that indeed even our minds, the way we think, the way we process, we draw conclusions, the way we take in actionable intelligence and then make a life-changing decision behind that information. I pray, Lord, that you would pursue us today and open our eyes to these clues of your existence to this evidence, Lord, that we have a good God who is reaching out to us. Holy Spirit, you're the presence of God. You transcend thinking, and somehow you pour into the heart and to the soul of mankind. And you speak to us, and you reach us in such a way that no, nothing written or any thinking process could actually create. And I ask you to come, Holy Spirit. Come and do your good work in us today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So you got your acronym clues there. And your first one, the C in your fill-in, if you want to track along with me, is this. There is the clue or the evidence of creation. The clue of creation. Do you guys know what a pulsar is? A star, it's just, I'm just gonna boil it down to layman where I can approach it because this is some weighty stuff. I mean, when you start walking into this A lot of us that are Christians and church people, you know, we want to walk into this and then act like experts. I'm no expert in this. This is very deep, deep information. When we start talking about science, astronomy, cosmology, astrophysics, all of this kind of thing. But there is enough information out there that we could actually process through it and be blessed by it. Uh, There's a thing such as a pulsar, which is this amazing star uh, that emits these electromagnetic pulses and up until the last few decades I guess we didn't know that they they were actually making sounds so I just want you to watch this very short clip watch this You didn't know God knew a flatted third, did you? (laughs) I mean, isn't that crazy? I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, I read these scriptures, like in Psalm 19, 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent the sun. I hear that, and I know that David, when he wrote these words, he didn't know, he didn't know what a pulsar was. He didn't understand any of that. This was a poetic gesture, a romantic poem of sorts to say that when you look out at night sky, God is speaking to you in, in such beautiful, creative poetry in a way to grab your attention. And yet, all these thousands of years later, we discover that indeed, in creation, God is speaking. Forth in an amazing way. And you can hear more of that if you go to Louis Giglio's site and you watch some of the work he's done. It's, he's even put some music together with the different sounds and all. Go to YouTube and spaces, places like that and pick up on more of that. But I mean, can, is all of this just random? I mean, in creation, when we look out, we walk outside. We live at the beach, people. Wow. You know, every time my toes touch the sand and the water, when I walk out in the water and I feel that ocean come up between the toes. I go, thank you for your creation, Lord. Thank you that I live here. And then, just to think, is it just scant chance that this place we call Earth, that man just kind of appeared on it, that through this macro-evolutionary process, this randomness that mankind has found a place to live in such a perfect environment, the... uh, Famous atheist and mathematician Bertrand Russell, back not that many decades ago, said this, is this the way it is? Man should be understood as a kind of unfortunate accident, a sideshow in the material universe, a curious accident in the backwater of the galaxies. Is that what we are, a curious accident in the backwater of the galaxies? Is that it? Or is there more to this? There may not be absolute certainty in things, but I am appealing to you to take in some actionable intelligence. Does this not look genius to you? (laughs) Does what goes on in the heavens and in creation, does it not look like the work of some creative genius? In 1973, on the 500th birthday of Nicholas Copernicus, the founder of astronomy, the father of of astronomy, all the well-known cosmologists and astrophysicists of the world gathered in Poland to exchange papers and their work. And there was a particular professor there, Brandon Carter, very well-known astrophysicist uh, from Cambridge University, and he presented a paper, this is in 1973, called Coincidences and the Anthropic Principle. Coincidence coincidences and the anthropic principle. Anthropics, kind of like from the Latin word for man and the man principle, the human principle. And the anthropic principle, he said, was that all the seemingly arbitrary and unrelated constants in physics have one strange thing in common. They are precisely the values you need if you want to have a universe capable of producing life. Precisely. The universe we inhabit seems to have a plan and seems to be like planned out in minute detail. And his anthropic principle spoke to that. Everything that has a beginning needs a cause. Mankind lives in this place that is perfectly set up. I personally think that our church fathers were way ahead of the, of the game. Because way back in 50 AD there was a Latin phrase or Latin... phrase coined called ex nihilo ex out and nihilo of nothing and that is that the church fathers said that creation came out of nothing that is I don't have a problem with the big bang I'm just more interested in the big of the bang because I think there's something really big behind the bang out of nothing God spoke it into existence ex nihilo out of nothing And so let's just, let's think about this. We're getting ready to go to Mars. They're planning a way, right, to send people to that far planet. Let's say they get on a ship, 10 men and women. They head out towards Mars, Mars, they hit it, they hit orbit. They go down, they land on the surface of Mars. They get their hovercraft out and they begin to explore the surface of Mars. When suddenly, maybe 20, 25 miles away, they come over a ridge and there before them is this huge biosphere, this dome, 20 miles in circumference, 20 miles high, a perfect dome. And they are just amazed and they drive up on it and they drive around it until they find this airlock this entrance into this biosphere. So they go to the lock and they unlock it and these 10 men and women, these astronauts walk into that biosphere and when they walk into that environment, what do they find? They look at their instruments, 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 50% humidity, an energy producing environment, an environment that supports food and able to cultivate something that would replenish the, li- the lives of those who would live in that biosphere. Now, what would be their conclusion? What kind of actionable intelligence is found in that? And yet we live right here on a, se- on a sphere that's several hundred million square miles, this biosphere called Earth. I wonder what the Martians would say. You know, they showed up here. This is the perfect setting to support humanity. Did you know that if gravity Was changed just the minutest part that everything would cease. We'd just fly off the planet. Or we'd be so weighted down we could not even exist. I mean, gravity has been fine tuned to one in ten with 40 zeros behind it. I can't even fathom that, but I did read an example. Because I'm older, I know what a radio dial is. If some of you there are younger, you can Google that. And you get home, you can say, radio dial, what? You know, this is retro, man. Retro is cool. You go to a radio, you look on a dial, and you know those little clicks, those hash marks that are around your radio dial, each one of those are like just a variation of a frequency, right? So to dial in, to try to get in where you can hear really well, you've got to find just the right frequency. Well, if our gravity was dialed in just to the right frequency, this is what the dial would look like. The dial would have 10,000 billion, 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 billion hash marks. And it would have to be on the exact one for us to live. The exact one. The exact one. When the creation of everything, if we want to call it the Big Bang, when it all started... If it was off, it was stronger or less than one part in 10 to the 60th power, we would have either not been able to exist or it would have just flown apart. It's that finely tuned, anthropic principle. Everything is dialed in just right for humanity to be able to live in this biosphere. I mean, I'm just giving some information out. I mean, just you guys are thinking people. I mean, you've taken this in. Okay, what does that mean? Take the clue in. Is that just random chance? One scientist said it this way it would be like firing a bullet at a one inch target at the other side of the universe, 20 billion light years away, and hitting the target. Man, we are so lucky. How did this happen? And there's so much we can develop, and there's great books you can read that are, are not yelling at people who don't believe this, that actually look at facts and figures. Uh, I still think The Reason for God by Tim Keller is one of the best. I'm reading a book by a philosopher named Alvin, Alvin Platingo right now. Who, it's just a f- probably my favorite book. I'm only about a third of the way through it because I like philosophy and I like the way it, he approaches it. I can refer you to lots of reading. So there's creation. We take the clues from creation. And we go, okay, I got that. This place is very special. We have yet to find another place this special. There may be another place, but that doesn't discount that this is very special, right? I mean, it's very special that every year we make our way around the sun, and every 24 hours we turn on our axis just right, just perfect for us to be able to live here. So there's the evidence, the clue of creation. Your second fill in there is there... The clue of longing, the clue of longing, that urge that's inside of, I believe, every single person to want to know their purpose for living, their purpose for life. I have never met someone who didn't have that. I think even scientists are propelled and encouraged to try to find this source of life and to push toward the mystery. All of us have this inside. I want to know why I'm here. I want to know why me, why me? And what's this all about in Isaiah 55, 1 through 2, some 2,500 years ago or so? Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good in your soul will delight in the richest of fare. You see, there's a hunger. It's always been in humanity, in each person, to know their creator. In John 7 and 37 through 38, Jesus speaks to this. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Streams of living water will flow from within him. You will be satisfied. Your thirst will be satisfied. We know we have it. We know we have this appetite, this thirst to know why we're here, what brought us here, that we're more than just an accident. Down the street here, Many years ago, a group of kids met one night and a friend had assembled probably about a hundred, you know how it goes through the years, evangelistically speaking, things grow. But it was a lot of, it was a lot of, it was a lot of kids. And he calls me up and he says, would you mind coming by the house? We've got some kids from high school and from middle school and, uh, you know, they're asking about Jesus would you come over and tell them about Jesus? I'm probably 25 years old, I guess. I'm the old man, you know, with the crew. I've been a Christian for three, four years. I don't know much. I know know Jesus has touched me, and I knew we all had a hole in our hearts. So I drive up 17 over here, and I approach the house, and there are cars down both sides of the road on 17 business. And in this yard, the yard is full of cars and so I walk into that house, and the house is full of kids. I mean, just crazy. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I mean, there are kids in the den. There are kids in the dining room. There are kids in the bathroom. And they were sitting like this, looking out. You know, The house was full of kids. And so I looked at you know my friend. I said, what do you want me to do? He says, I don't know. I got them here. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, tell them. Tell them. I'm like, gosh, I don't know much of anything. You know, I, I, I know that. I knew that Jesus had touched me. He knew that Jesus had touched him. And so I just, you know, I walked from room to room, and in the the dining den area there, there were like three or four rows of kids deep. And there was this one young man sitting on the front. And so I said a few, I don't remember what I said, but then I said, well, okay. Oh, how about we pray? And uh, this young guy waves his hand at me. And I said, yeah, and everybody leans in to hear what he's going to ask. And he goes, well, what's the big deal about Jesus? He says, what's, why is he so much of a bigger deal than Buddha or Muhammad or Zoroaster or any of them? Why, what's the big deal? I mean, I didn't know. To be honest with you, I mean, I'm just starting my journey. I know what Jesus had done to me, but I couldn't go through this list of Well, you see now this and this and this. And so I'm sitting there and all these kids are leaning in. And he looks like he's there to challenge me. And I'm thinking, man, the devil has brought an enemy in this room tonight, you know. (laughs) But all of a sudden I just thought, I don't. So I said, well, why are you here? And he looked at me and then he fell apart. (laughs) And just starts weeping uncontrollably because the hole in his heart had been exposed. That longing, that urge to know his creator had suddenly been broken open. And he he was feeling that pull, that longing, that urging. Even Plato said this. Those who have endured the void know they've encountered a distinctive hunger or emptiness. Nothing earthly satisfies it. Nothing earthly satisfies it. Within all of us. It's this pull, this longing, this urging. Some of us have tried to touch that eternity. We've tried to touch that sense of fulfillment and we've substituted all kinds of things for it from just lots of sexual activities and exotic things and to making more money. If I can just squeeze out one more thrill of the deal, if I can just like make this happen then suddenly I feel almost... Like I'll live forever. I've touched my source of meaning. Or more knowledge and education or reading more. You know, reading more It's so funny. When I got ordained, I was ordained when I was 27 years old. The guy who laid hands on me, one of the, one of the guys, went off and prayed for the three uh, ordination guys. The guys were going to be ord, uh, ordained. And when he came back, he had this little prof- prophecy that he felt like God had spoke to him about the three of us that were being prayed for. And so when he comes to me, I'm in this big church, he comes to me and he starts to read and he reads this to me. He says, uh, Tim, God wants you to know that the man that God uses is not a man of facts and figures and knowledge only, but is a man of deep faith and personal relationship. Because that's my proclivity, my proclivity is to read, 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 study, 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 study. Knowledge, 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 knowledge. And I can substitute that for that longing. I can think that that satisfies the longing. When that doesn't fill the hole, but it can give us actionable intelligence to draw some conclusions. Sensible, reasonable conclusions. Ecclesiastes 3.11 has this amazing statement. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men and women. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has placed eternity in your heart, in every person's heart. This sense, this longing, this urge to know your creator, to know your God. So there's creation, the clues. Okay, let's just take the clues in. Let's just take some information in. And then there's the longing. And then your third one, the U here, is unity. Unity. Now, I I just want to make a confession to you. The reason I used U and used unity is because I had to have a word with U in it. I'm just going (laughs) to. I mean, I spent like two days on this acronym. I hope you appreciate it. And I mean, this really was killing me. I mean, I had done so many synonyms and work and trying to find, find it. And, uh, you know, I, I just, but, but here's the way it applies, okay? There seems to be this unity of moral obligation in humanity. There seems to be this sense of value in all of humanity. Now, yeah, we get it wrong a lot of times, but whenever some group or some despot shows up on the scene and he has taken advantage of the weak and he has taken advantage of the uh, people who can't defend themselves, the whole earth will suddenly rally around them and come to their aid and try to help them, to keep them from being taken advantage of. Where does that come from? Where does that sense, that unifying moral obligation come from in humanity? Who put it there? Why? Why do we have it? professor out of the University of Texas, uh, Professor J. Budzinswinski, said this, Everyone knows certain principles. There is no land where murder is virtue and gratitude vice. Now, where does that come from? Where does that sense that there is some moral foundation in all of humanity that we have lived and actually existed and survived from over all of this time? C.S. Lewis, the great writer, Chronicles of Narnia, said this, think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. Who puts that in humanity? Why do we have that? Why did all of the world eventually know that apartheid was wrong in South Africa and it had to fall. Why did all of humanity with the Nazis come in and go, that's wrong, that's not right. And so all of humanity poured in to try to push that down. How did we eventually know that slavery was wrong? It was wrong. Where did that moral obligation, that deep moral obligation come from? I think there's some evidence there. Over in Leviticus 19, Verses 1 through 2, the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, here's how you are to act. You need to live this way because this is my character. Why do we need to forgive? Why are we a forgiving people? Because God forgives. It is a picture of his character. Why do we, even countries go to the defense of the innocent when they are being murdered and killed and famine and flood takes on and covers them up and they don't have enough food or shelter. Why do we feel this compelling sense of love and concern? Where does humanity get that from? Because that's the way God is. God cares for the weak. He cares for the poor. He cares for those disadvantaged and those being taken advantage of. And I think it's evidence It's actionable intelligence that we ask, where did that come from? And what kind of God has that kind of heart and that love for his creation? The ancients used to have a term, it came out of Genesis 1, and uh, where Genesis 1 26. Where God said, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There was a term that they called Imago Dei, the image of God. It was imprinted on his creation. And when it says image, it means the art of God. Created in the art, it was the art of God of God, the working of God's unique abilities to create here on this earth, you and me, something very special. I mean, how do we know that people are so special that we should defend the weak? And you say, well, Tim, everybody knows you shouldn't be killing the weak. Really? Who said that? Where does that come from? Why do we feel responsibility to help people if you see someone drowning, you want to go help them. If you see someone run out in traffic and is about to be hurt, you want to lean in and, and to rescue them. When we watch the ads on television of people who are starving to death, our hearts go, ah, oh, we pick up the phone, we call in. Where does that come from? Even NATO, when they go in and try to help, I mean, where does that come from in mankind? Is that a deposit? Is that a deposit of God himself? Because we have survived when certain animals And plant life are extinct now. But we're still here. We're still here. Is there any actionable intelligence in that for us to consider that just maybe we have a God who really cares about us, who really loves us? Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, says, if there is no God, then there's no way to say any one action is moral and another immoral, but only I like this. (laughs) The Bible has a phrase for that when it says, in that day every man did what was right in his own eyes. Is that the best we can do? But somehow there's this gravitational pull that no matter how bad things get, when the Nazis, when Hitler began to kill so many millions of Jewish people, the world came back in and corrected that. There's something inside of mankind. There's some unifying moral obligation to do something about the injustices. Why should a thoughtful thinking, reasonable person believe in God? Creation. There's some actionable intelligence. That longing, that urging that you feel inside your heart, that unity of moral obligation that we see in the world and in our own hearts. and Lastly, of the clues, that experience, e. C-L-U-E, experience, experience. I am still amazed now at the change I have seen in so many people over all these years. I have watched people go from being this way, being very immoral, very unloving, with no hope, to being pastors. <laughs> I have watched People who didn't care about their neighbor at all suddenly come in contact with a loving God and suddenly they are out serving those who have nothing. Who can explain that experience? I mean, for myself, as many times as you're going to hear my story, I love to tell it. (laughs) But I look back on it and I go again and again. I didn't go to that surfing contest Looking for God, I didn't go there to be apprehended by God. I didn't, but something happened to me on that Saturday afternoon, May 1st, 1971 at Atlantic Beach, Moorhead City, North Carolina. Something happened to me that changed my whole life. My professional plans, all of it. Our life, all of it. It changed it all and set it on a trajectory that brings me right here, right now. You know, you can't argue with experience. People can try to talk you out of it, but you know. You know. When you look at friends of yours who Christ has touched and changed, you know. We used to have a man in our church years ago that would sit in the back at our old location, Vietnam vet, door gunner in Vietnam. And he would sit in the back of the room. Some friends brought him. He was very faithful to come, and he would stand up, and he would mouth the words. And when he sat down, he was very engaged with me when I spoke. And one day, he says, Tim, can we talk? And so we met, and he told me his story, and it was a fascinating story. And then he looked at me, and he said this. One day, I want to walk in this building for the same reason you do. One day, I want to walk in the vineyard for the same reason that these wonderful people do. One day, I want to sing the songs that you guys sing for the same reason that you sing them. Right now, I'm here because, to be honest with you, I like this place. I like these people, and I like to hang out here. But one day, one day, I want to do this for the same reason all of you guys do. And about three weeks later, I'm finishing up the sermon. He's sitting on the back, and we get to that point, and I watch him, and I see his body just shaking. He is just shaking all over, and I look, and the tears begin to pour down his face. And I watch his hands go out, and I know what's going on. Because from that point on, he did come in here for the same reason the rest of us came in here. And you can't take that away from him. And that is some actionable intelligence that I cannot explain outside of God doing some crazy work in his life. There's experience. Now, what do we do? I mean, I love C.S. Lewis, by the way. C.S. Lewis, one of, one of the many stories, there are some kinds of differing accounts of what happened with him. But one of the books I read about Lewis was that he said, I got in the car with my brother to go to the zoo and got out a Christian. I mean, how does that happen? I mean, how does that happen? Experience. Is there any actionable intelligence there that would help you make a decision? So, what do we do with these clues? To me, it is reasonable, and this is your last feeling, to surrender the S. To say, here's enough actionable intelligence for me to act on what I've heard, Tim. I had the longing. I look at creation and I go, wow, look at this. It's perfect for me to live here. I look at the moral, the unity of moral obligation in this world and what has kept us here and kept us together. As messed up as it gets at times, there's still this golden thread of moral obligation in the earth. And I see my friends and I see people who have experienced the presence of God, the salvation Last week I used the example of getting on a plane that you don't know the pilot, that you don't know the maintenance schedule of the plane, but you make a decision. Well, I want to use that that metaphor again. Think of it in terms of flying. That it's not just enough to believe that a plane can fly. It's not just enough to understand some aerodynamics. Not enough to believe in aviation. It's not enough time to go down to our new terminal, walk around and watch the planes land and watch them take off to see the pilots go in and out and to listen to the engines roar. It's not enough. That's not going to get you to California. You got to get on the plane. You have to board the plane. And there is enough actionable intelligence. There's enough proof and enough clues that you can board the plane and you can get to where you need to go. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.